I love this reading. It is one of my favorites because it has not just this phenomenal, what we'd call a theophany, this spiritual transformative experience, but also because of what this story teaches us. Now, to begin with, um, I wanted to just make note of the season we are in. Some of you are thinking, oh, he's going to talk about Lent. No, I'm talking about March Madness. <laughs> there are more than one seasons, right? <laughs> and so uh, one of the things that I thought about this week was um, how excited I am for March Madness. I, I love this time of year. I love these basketball games because you get to see some of the best basketball of all year. When you also get to see perhaps a, what they call a Cinderella team, an unexpected team, knock off a really big team, kind of like Oral Roberts University did to Ohio State University on Friday. And so you see those kinds of games, um, but what you also see are just really competitive basketball games. Now, I do have an investment in this particular March Madness. My Iowa Hawkeyes are doing pretty well, and so I'm a little nervous. Um, I, don't, I don't want them to have close games. I'm sorry, Antelope fans out there. Um, you know, that we're rooting for GCU. Uh, but I, I hope that um, overall, outside of the Iowa games, that they're all pretty close. Um, so when I talk about that, the reason I bring that up is because I don't know if you could imagine yourself, but I cannot imagine myself being on one of those basketball courts for the men's fi uh, uh, dance or for the women's basketball dance. I mean, I couldn't keep up with either one of them. What about you? When I think about this season of basketball, what it reminds me of is how we have kind of turned the church into a dance as well, where perhaps only the very brightest or the very most talented or the most liturgically correct people, that's where they all get to perform. The rest of us, it's just a spectator sport. Well, spectator sports is okay for basketball, but I don't think that's what God intended for church, for ministry. And so today I wanted to take a look at that theme because I think that is a, an, an overriding theme that we see in this story of Elijah and Elisha. Let's take a look at Elijah to see how he expanded his ministry by apprenticing a young prophet named Elisha. To begin with Elijah, uh, we have to note that, that he didn't die. He is one of two in the Bible that we are told never dies. One is Enoch in the book of Genesis. Um, in Genesis chapter 5, it makes reference to how Enoch is just taken up. And uh, what we see today in our story of Elijah is that he is taken up into heaven without dying. Some of you may say, well, what about Jesus? You know, because he went to heaven, um, but he died and then was resurrected from the dead. So that's the distinction. Enoch and Elijah are the only two characters in the whole Bible who never die. Elijah was to return. Um, he went up on that whirlwind of of, of God's making uh, after being separated from Elisha 
by the chariot and the horses and the charioters. Elijah went up into heaven, but knowing that, that God would send him back again someday. You see, Elijah is spoken about in the prophets as one who would return at the beginning of the Messianic age. John the Baptist made reference to it, and, uh, and Malachi makes reference to it. I have a, a reading from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. This is what Malachi the prophet says from the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Look, I am sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord's arriving. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So Malachi uh, reinforces this idea, this um, expectation that Elijah is to come again, to introduce, to announce, to proclaim the Messianic age. And so it is fitting that when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, that's how we began this series, it's fitting that, that Elijah is there along with Moses to speak with Jesus because Jesus is beginning the Messianic age now. Elijah not only teaches us about ministry, but he also announces to us the coming of the Messiah. But first, let's go back and dig into this lesson on doing ministry as God's people. Elijah's ascent into heaven has us focused on really one thing, and that is authority and power. Authority and power. It's a beautiful story of authority and power and how God uses Elijah, the great prophet, and Elisha, who is to become a great prophet, how God uses these two prophets to demonstrate God's authority here on earth. And when God's authority is demonstrated on earth, what we begin to see is God's power being made manifest on this earth. Now, you can have power without authority. You can take power. You can wield power without authority. But that kind of power is rudderless. It's self-indulgent, and it is, um, it is intended for yourself. The kind of authority and power that is demonstrated here today is God's authority and power. Now, there are stories of godly people being invested with God's authority, but that authority that they have been invested with becomes corrupted. And before long, they are no longer concerned with God's authority, but rather their own authority. For example, in, in the story of, of Samuel, his sons, we refer to them as the sons of Samuel, were judges, and they were to mete out righteous judgments on behalf of God. But they were taking bribes, and the justice that they were, um, that they were ruling over was a perverted justice, and God saw that and became angry with it. And so... There's an example of someone or some people who were entrusted with God's authority that perverted that authority. We also know that King 
uh, Saul was given God's authority to be the king over Israel. And yet when God anoints his successor, David, Saul, King Saul takes offense at that and tries to kill David. He tries to take out God's authority. And because of that, God's power is made manifest in Saul's life. So we, we have this understanding that we are called to be representatives of God's authority. And that when we use power, that power should be used on behalf of God, not on behalf of what we want, what we would desire. For example, when Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, when, when they went up to Mount Carmel to experience that, uh, that other great theophany, one of the, the many that we hear in the story of Elijah, when they went up to Mount Carmel, God's authority was declared and God's power was demonstrated as God's actions in burning up the sacrifice was almost instantaneous upon Elijah calling upon God to show that power. So true power, authentic power, always comes with authority that rests not on us, but on God. As Christians, power also comes to us from God, through God's authority. It's a gift of God for us to have that authority. It's, a, it's an authority, a gift that you were given in your, in your baptism when the Spirit of God comes upon you. And as that Spirit of God comes upon you, you are endowed now with God's authority and God's calling and God's purpose. And so when you act on behalf of God, that power then becomes an instrument to demonstrate God's authority upon this earth. It is a gift for us to receive that authority. And it is a responsibility for us to use that power responsibly. Let's begin with the mantle. In the story, it says that Elijah had a mantle. And that mantle is actually a garment that they would have worn over their shoulders. And it would have been made with animal hair. Today, we'd call it fur. Um, probably an expensive garment that was worn by either a king or prophets. Those were the ones that were entitled to wear these kinds of garments. But the mantle was more than just an expensive piece of clothing. The mantle was considered to be a symbol of the call from God. So Elijah had his mantle and that was a symbol of his calling from God to be a prophet. And in 1 Kings 19, this is prior to our story from today, when, when Elijah goes and sees Elijah and calls him to be a prophet, what does he do? He puts his mantle, Elijah's mantle, over Elisha. When he threw his mantle upon Elisha, 
he was calling Elisha to come and to follow him, to learn from him, to, that he would teach him things about God and what it means to live out the role of a prophet. Elijah uses the mantle to part the Jordan River. Remember when he rolls up the mantle and he zaps the, the water in the Jordan River and the water separates and dry ground is there for them to cross from Israel into, into the land of Jordan? And so when he does that, Elisha follows him. He is still learning from him. Elijah uses the mantle to demonstrate his teaching that will continue as long as he is on this earth. After his ascent into heaven, Elisha then takes up the mantle and he parts the Jordan River again. But this time he does it to go back into the promised land. So Elijah had led Elisha out of the promised land along with the 50 prophets. Now Elisha is leading the 50 prophets. They're following him. He's leading them back into Israel, into the promised land. This is an authority that Elisha demonstrates now that Elijah has been taken up into heaven. And it's an authority that he is demonstrating so that the other prophets can see his role, his responsibility, his calling. From where did that authority come? Was it from the people? No, it didn't come from the people. They didn't give them that authority. Was it from Elijah? That might be a more likely um, illustration of receiving authority, but it didn't even come from Elijah. Elisha's authority came from God. He heard God's calling upon his life. He heard God telling him to follow Elijah, to learn from him, to trust him, and to see from him what it means to be a prophet. Now, I have a mantle. <laughs> I don't usually wear it. But I thought I might bring it out and show it to you. It's a symbol of power that has been vested in me in my ordination as, as a pastor. And, and so some of you have seen this before, and I usually have an alb when I wear it, a white robe. But this is my mantle. It's made of a beautiful cloth and beautiful colors. And some of you are probably wondering, well, if that's your mantle, why, why, why aren't you wearing it? And let me explain why I'm not wearing it. Because I'm more interested in talking about the power and the authority that has been vested in you. The authority that comes from God that has been given to you. And the power that you are entrusted with to use on behalf of God. You see, I have a mantle, but you do too. You're probably wondering, well, where's my mantle? Well, your mantle, um, symbolically, are the mantles that you wear when you serve communion, if you're a communion server here. I tried to dig one of those up, and I couldn't find it before the service. But you know what I'm talking about if you have been a part of this church. Uh, for all the communion servers, you put a little stole around your neck with a cross on the end of it, as a symbol of your authority to be able to use the power 
to serve the body of Christ and the blood of Christ to the people of God. I believe that we, as a body of Christ, will not survive. This church will not survive. No, it's not about how much money we have. That is not the case. We will not survive if we are not following our God-given calls, the authority that has been vested in us, with the power that is given to us in order to do the ministry of Jesus Christ here on earth, in our communities, in our families, in our state, in our world, wherever God is calling us. You see, we as a people of God, we are the ones that are vested with this authority. It's not just the professionals. This is not March Madness of the church. This is a different picture. This is a picture of the early church where the apostles are making new disciples who are doing the ministries and the work of God. An example of how you could be participating in the ministry of Christ through this church. Prayer is a ministry. Last fall I had several prayer vigils before we uh, began to attempt to open in the fall for our in-person worship. And I had about five that showed up on that first prayer vigil. Uh, the following two, um, I was alone. Now, I'm not saying that this church doesn't feel called to pray, but it did make me wonder why I was alone. And part of the reason why I wondered that is because this is not my church. This is Christ's church. And we all are called to invest into that church with the different ministries and gifts that we have. First of all, if you want to be a part of the prayer ministry, you have to believe in prayer. <laughs> it's not going to work if you're not a believer in prayer. Secondly, if you are a believer in prayer and you want to be vested in the prayer ministry, you have to pray. When the church calls upon you to pray, you've got to be there to pray. We call it the priesthood of all believers. Peter is the one, some of you think that Martin Luther made this up. Uh, Luther makes makes. A great note of it. He comments on it several times. But, but Luther didn't make it up. Luther picked it up from Peter's writing. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, let me begin at verse 4. Um, this is a quote that he begins with from Jesus when he says, I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. I'm sorry, I started too late. I wanted to start at verse 4. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. If I'm confused, um, that's all right if you're confused. Um, we're all confused together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by the people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And you are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, here it is, you are his holy priest. You, not me, you are his holy priest. Through this, 
mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices. Through your workings is what he is saying. You offer spiritual sacrifice. You offer those sacrifices that please God, as the scripture says. I am placing a cornerstone in Jerusalem, chosen for great honor, and anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Yes, you who trust in him recognize the honor God has given him. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they do not obey God's word, so they meet the fate that was planned for them. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people, a royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter is very clear. He learned this from Jesus, right? He is very clear. You and I are priests together. And as a church, we need to begin to live like that. We can't continue to think of this as a spectator sport. It's especially difficult, I know, with COVID. But in the meantime, maybe that's the big challenge for us, is to begin to re-envision how are we going to be the church when we come back together. To be a part of the priesthood means this. You're a priest. You became a priest when you believed in Christ and were baptized. At this point, you are probably wondering, where is my mantle? And I wish I could show you that mantle. But trust me, you have a mantle, and it's a symbolic mantle. The mantle you have is your spiritual gifts and your calling and your purpose. You have these things that you have learned from your life. Maybe you've picked it up from your work. Um, maybe you've been a musician your whole life. You just knew how to play music. It was a gift from God, and now you give that gift back to God. You see, those are the ways that we can contribute to be the body of Christ, the church. Serving the church, not always through the buildings and the program, serving the church, that can be the most important gift that you give. Remember, church and ministry are not spectator sports. But we are not only called to serve, we are also called to teach and to apprentice others, to follow us. In my e-weekly, I've made that comment. What happens to your ministry if you are living out that ministry? What happens to that ministry on the day that you are swept up into heaven like Elijah? You see, before his ascent into heaven, Elijah spent time teaching Elisha about the prophetic role and call. Elijah was a diligent student. And he refers to his, his teacher as my father. It's his spiritual father. In verses 11 and 12 uh, of our reading today that, that Lori shared with us, as they were walking along, talking, this is Elijah and Elisha, suddenly, uh, uh, suddenly a chariot of fire appeared, drawn by horses of fire, 
and it drove between the two men, separating them, Elijah and Elisha. Elijah was carried by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, I see the chariots and the charioters of Israel, and as they disappeared from sight, Elisha tore his clothes in distress. Tearing his clothes was a symbol of mourning. He was grief-stricken. His spiritual father had been taken from him and swept up into heaven. But now it was his responsibility. And so one of the stories that, that we hear about Elisha is that he actually calls the, well, the military commander of Syria, Naaman, comes to him uh, because he is, actually his servant comes to him because he is sick with leprosy. And Elisha tells the commander that he should go and wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. This is a ritual washing. And that, he be, that he'll be cleansed. Well, the military commander, first of all, he's Syrian. He's not Jewish. He said, what does this guy know? I'm not going to do that. And his, and his uh, servant convinces him, no, he's a great prophet. Go do it. What do you have to lose? And Naaman goes down to the river and he washes himself. And on the seventh time, he is completely cleansed from the leprosy. That demonstrates that God's authority and power, which had been seen in Elijah, is now seen in Elisha. And that same thing happens for us. Your authority and power that you have been given from God to do this, uh, this ministry, that can be shared with others as you teach others, as you apprentice others to follow you. Who are we teaching to follow us in ministry, in prayer, in serving the homeless with water and the good news of the gospel, teaching children about Jesus? These are just a few examples of how we can offer and serve with God's power because of God's authority that has been invested in us. How has God called you to serve? And with whom are you sharing what you know about that authority and that power? In this story, Elisha ends it with a spiritual request. Before he ascends into heaven, Elijah asks Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken away from you. And Elisha asks Elijah this, Give me a double portion of your spirit. Now, this may sound like an outlandish request, like, wow. I mean, Elijah was already a great prophet. You want to be twice as great as Elijah? But that's not what he was asking for. A double portion was a reference to an inheritance. So the, in that day, it was sons, but today we would say sons and daughters. In that day, the eldest son, the firstborn son, received a double portion of the inheritance. So that means if you had five children, that uh, it would be divided six ways. Every child would receive five, except for the firstborn, he'd receive two portions. And so the double portion wasn't about how much it was, it was about the authority, the responsibility to use that power. Because not only did they receive that double portion, but they were expected 
to serve others to be the spiritual head of that family now. They had a larger responsibility. And so they used that larger inheritance to help develop that larger responsibility. Not only did Elijah receive twice of what Elijah had, he also became the spiritual father of at least the 50 prophets and then other prophets that had followed him and heard him. His leadership role would become his authority. And from his authority, he would wield God's power on behalf of God. But his power would never be used for his own purposes. It was always to be used for God. Now, some of you have received a single portion of God's inheritance, and others of you have received a double portion. It doesn't matter what you have, whether you have a single portion or a double portion. If you've got a single portion, you have a responsibility. If you have a double portion, you have more responsibility. So it doesn't matter what you've received. But what matters is this, how you use it. So two questions for you today as we end this message. The first question, what is God calling you to do in ministry on behalf of the church with the church? What is God calling you to do? And who will you teach to follow you? Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for these conversations that we've had with the prophets this Lenten season. And we pray that as we contemplate these lessons, that we are reminded that you have given us power and authority. Your authority, your power. Help us to use that on behalf of your kingdom, Lord. And may our work be seen as working alongside of Jesus, the Messiah, who is already here working even before us. And may his work in our hands and feet and our voices that accompany him, may they be seen as your power and authority on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Mm -hmm.